Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. It is good to be with you this morning and to worship with you. I said this in first service. It is a joy that we actually get to worship together. Uh, one of those things we learned during COVID uh, is that it is just not the same when you are at home uh, by yourself as being surrounded by our brothers and sisters. I get to hear you guys singing every week. I hope you get to hear one another. We get to experience each other, love each other. I mean, I'm just thrilled that we get to worship today. We're going to continue that as we look through our word. Grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Ephesians 5, 21 is where we're going to be in just a minute as we kick off a brand new sermon series today. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Hopefully, you got a copy of God's word there with you. Uh, if not, maybe a device. And if not, I'm sure somebody would be happy for you to look on with them. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 is where we'll be in just a second. While we're turning there, let me ask you a question. What is your picture of marriage? Like when you think about marriage, and I say the word marriage, what's the first picture that comes to mind? Now, let's be clear here. I did not say a wedding because that's different. Like if I said, what is your picture of a wedding? I imagine some pictures would instantly come to mind. And they would probably be very similar across the board. We would be thinking about uh, an altar, a wedding ceremony, bride and groom. I mean, the, all of that stuff. It would be a very similar picture. But what picture comes to mind when you think about a marriage? See, that is different. And I imagine that, that picture would be very different all across the room. But what comes to mind for you? I think for many of us, we probably think first and foremost about our parents and their marriage. That's the, the marriage that we got to see close up and personal uh, our entire life, right? Growing up, that was the, the marriage you saw the most of. And a lot of our ideas about marriage will get crafted simply by what we saw in our parents. Uh, but there's another place that we learn about marriage, and that's television, Right? I mean, television will teach you a lot about marriage because we're watching this, this national stuff, and you just kind of assume uh, that this is kind of what marriage is like, and, and we try to build things on that, and that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But think about how that has changed over the past 50, 60 years. Like, let's go back to the 50s and 60s, and if you're thinking about sitcoms, we got Leave It to Beaver, Right? That's the picture of marriage, okay? So you got Leave it a Beaver going on, uh, and then you move up in time. Uh, what about the 70s? All right, the 70s, you got All in the Family and the Jeffersons, remember them? Right? So you've got that. That's a different picture of what's going on. I'm a child of the 80s, uh, so I remember Growing Pains uh, and Family Ties. Do you remember these? Right? So you got a little bit of that. Uh, going out late in the 80s, you get married with children. Remember that? All right, so more of you watched that than I thought. All right, so... Um, <laughs> I'm checking here. All right, so uh, you got married with children. Uh, you get into the 90s. Uh, we get lots of Everybody Loves Raymond. You get that Cosby show from the 80s. Forgot that. Uh, so you get that. You got Everybody Loves Raymond. We get Friends uh, as well. Uh, and then later on in the 2000s, you get A Modern Family. Uh, as, uh, and what else? Oh, Big Bang Theory. You get that as well. It's going on. You're like, hey, on Adam, a couple of those. I don't know if those are family sitcoms. Maybe, maybe they are. Because look, as you go through time, you see a change in our ideas about marriage. What we have been seeing over the course of the past two generations is a sea change in our understanding in America of what marriage actually is. We have changed dramatically in a very short amount of time. We can kind of see it and feel it, but you can quantify this as well. Let me show you a couple things. Uh, here's some stats. First off, the marriage rate in America is the lowest it's ever been. 
Since we started keeping records in 1867, the marriage rate has never been this low in America. Fewer people are married now, on average, in America than ever in our national history. That is interesting. Go to the next one. Uh, 70 years ago, a large majority of U.S. households, 80%, were made up of married couples. By 2020, that's down to 49%. 70 years ago, the vast majority of people in America are married. By now, it's less than half of people are married in America. Let that sink in. That's very interesting. Go to the next one. Uh, In 2006, about half of U.S. adults said it was very important for couples having children together to legally marry which that makes sense, right? Like if you were going to have kids, you should probably be married so you can have those kids. By 2020, that proportion had fallen to 29%. A third of people in America, only a third of people in America think it's important that if you're gonna have kids, you should probably be married. That is fascinating. Today, the proportion of US births to unmarried mothers is about 40%, double the percentage in 1980. 40% of births in America right now, are being born into unmarried households. Is that the last one? Um, and then, yeah, finally, the proportion of never marrieds among Americans aged 25 to 50 years old quadrupled from 9% in 1970 to 35% in 2018. Around the time that I was born, only 9% of people aged 25 to 50 were unmarried. By today, that has quadrupled to 35%. People are delaying getting married. This is a sea change in how we think about marriage. And so now you've got all kinds of ideas about marriage as if it is malleable, as if you can create it and make it whatever you want it to be. There is gay marriage. We have open marriage. You've got polyamory, which is when you have relationships concurrently with multiple people and you're all together at the same time. If you get married, they call that polygamy, but they don't want to go that far. So you've got that going on or you've just got no marriage whatsoever. Just cohabitate. Live together. Who needs a piece of paper? Just live together and surely it's fine. You got all these different ideas about marriage in our culture and it begs the question, okay, so, so which one of them is right? How should we actually be thinking about marriage? Is it the kind of thing that everybody can just make up their own definition? That everybody can create their own idea about marriage or is there something, more, something deeper, more fundamental something spiritual about marriage that guides us into a proper understanding of what marriage is. Uh, This week, we're starting a new sermon series called The Secret of Marriage, and we're going to take a whole sermon series really to kind of explore this idea, and I will tell you the secret even before today, so you don't have to like wait like six weeks to find out, right? But we'll we'll tell you today exactly what it is. Uh, But listen, we're going to find out that God has a lot to say about marriage, Now, look, we need to be aware that there's a lot of different kinds of people in the room, and this is going to land a little bit differently for all of us. Uh, I was 37 when I got married, which means I spent a lot of time as a single guy in the church listening to marriage sermons uncomfortably, all right? Uh, And you might be single in the room and said, Adam, I don't know how I feel about this. I'm not married. Does this have anything to do for me? Absolutely, it does. For all the singles in the room and students, this is certainly true for you as you're thinking about marriage and getting ready for future marriage. All right, we need to be thinking about, okay, what am, I, what am I wanting to build? What am I looking for? Who am I looking to spend my life with? You need to understand what God says so that you can look towards a future marriage in your life. Some of us are divorced. You may say, Adam, I, I had that marriage, but I, I don't have it anymore. Or you might be divorced and remarried. Well, it would be good to understand what God thinks about marriage so that 
As you, if you're thinking about getting remarried at some point or even to understand what happened in your previous marriage, understanding what God has to say on the subject is incredibly helpful and important. You might be widowed. You say, Adam, I'm not happy by this series. I had that. Now I don't have that anymore. So maybe I'll just check out for the next few weeks. I wish you wouldn't. Because even for you, there is a joy here. There's something deeper here about marriage that God wants to show even for you, even in your bereavement, that the Lord can help us with. And for all of us, especially those who are married here, there is obviously benefit for those of us who are married. But for all of us, we get the opportunity to learn how to champion marriage, how to defend marriage, how to protect marriage, and especially the marriages of the people we know and love around us. So this is unbelievably important for all of us, and I hope you'll stick around for the entire series as we kind of walk through that. But this morning, we are literally just kind of scratching the the, the surface and just kind of looking at an overview of the concept. And what we'll find is, is that God actually talks about marriage a lot. He has a lot to say on this topic. In fact, before we even get to Ephesians chapter 5, I want to kind of look at the beginning and the end because uh, you may or may not know this, but the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. Did you know that? I was a little bit shocked when somebody finally pointed this out to me, that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. So if you got one of those little uh, bookmark thingies in your Bible, put that there in Ephesians 5, uh, and let's go to a Genesis chapter 2 to start off. I'll put it up on the screen too, but, uh, but Genesis chapter 2. So flip to the front of your Bible. You got chapter 1, chapter 2, Genesis 2. I want you to look what it says right here at the very beginning. The Lord has been creating He has created Adam, but he has not created Eve at this point. And so look what happens in the middle of the creation story. This is Genesis 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the the birds of the heavens. Uh, and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, this is very interesting. At the very beginning, God is creating. And when he makes Adam, he says, it's not good that man should be alone. Well, that's interesting because there's no sin in the world. Everything is exactly how God designed it. So how can anything be not good? Well, clearly God is not done creating yet. He says there's more work to be done. And so he creates woman. And so now creation is complete. Now Adam and Eve together reflect the very image of God. But look at what God does. He takes the woman out of the man and he takes his new daughter and presents her to the man. And so Eve is presented by her father to her husband. Do you see the picture of the wedding ceremony and how that all works? And so he presents her to the man, and Adam finally says, okay, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now creation is complete. But look at what God is doing at the very beginning. Adam is unified. He is a single being by himself in a perfect relationship with God, and God divides him into two. He makes them different. 
And he says, but now I want to bring you back together in a marriage. The very first two people get married and they're naked. They have no shame. He says, God, I am doing this on purpose. So this is good. It is a part of the created order. And if you look, you say, Adam, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, I can tell you how Jesus feels about it and how Paul feels about it because they will actually refer back to this passage saying that, listen, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus refers to this and says, no, this, this, is, this is legitimate. This is what God has done. However you understand this passage, God is saying, this is how I made humanity. So marriage is right there from the very beginning. But you also find it to the very end. So flip now to the end of your Bible. Let's go to Revelation. Let's go to Revelation chapter 19. End of your Bible. You go to the maps. You went too far. Go back. Okay. You get to to Revelation chapter 19. There's only 21 chapters in Revelation. So you're two chapters away from the end of the Bible. If you've ever read Revelation, it's weird, but it tells us the end. All things are coming to an end and everything is becoming new, the new heavens and the new earth, but sin has been eradicated, Satan has been banished, and there's a celebration that's kicking off. And look what it says here in Genesis 19, verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. All right, so here at the very end, there's now a marriage feast. It's a wedding celebration. So who's getting married? Well, you have the lamb, that's Jesus. We sang that in the song earlier today. All through Revelation, he has given this title of the lamb, the lamb that was slain. But who is he marrying? Well, he's marrying us because we are the bride of Christ. Not you, 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 not us individually, but we collectively are his bride. And so now there's a wedding ceremony between Christ and his church. He's the bridegroom. We are the bride. We are to be united forevermore. Remember the abide series? We talked about how he abides in us and we abide in him. He says, I I meant that. Literally, there's going to be a union here forever, a deep, glorious, joyous, loving reunion. Christ is going to be united to his church forever. So this is joy. This is exactly what God intended. He started in the beginning, and here we see it at the end. But now let's get to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 kind of pulls this all together. In Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21, Paul is giving some very practical instruction to wives and husbands as to how we are to live in a marriage context. I want you to look at how he explains the secret of marriage in here. So look for it. See if you can find it. Here's chapter 5, verse 21. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, look, a lot there, I know. And we have just looked at three massive passages, and we're not going to be able to, to dive deep into every single one of them today. But I want you to see the grand narrative of this, because we see it in the beginning, we see it in the end, and here in Ephesians, you see him calling back to both. He references Genesis, where he says the exact same thing, the two will become one flesh, and then he prefigures Revelation. So this is the marriage of Christ and his church. But in the middle, we find us. We find our marriages as we try to live as as husbands and wives in marriages. How does this work? So even just looking at the broad scope here, let me give you three things we can already see right off the bat. The first one is this. Marriage is spiritual. Marriage is spiritual. Marriage is not simply a personal arrangement. It's not simply beneficial. It's certainly not natural and that you don't see monogamy all throughout the natural world. This is more than that. It is spiritual. God creates it on purpose. And he says, I'm doing something with this. In fact, you're going to need my help to make marriage work. If you want to understand marriage, you have to understand its spiritual nature. There is a union spiritually that occurs when two people are married. You can't simply look at the the physical aspects or the economic aspects or the social aspects. You are being united spiritually. If you and I ignore the spiritual aspects of our marriages, you will miss the entire point. In fact, that might be why some of your marriages are are in trouble is because we are ignoring this very spiritual nature of marriage. But But God designs it from the beginning to be spiritual. Here's the second thing. Marriage is good. It's good. It is a blessing. God means for it to be joyous for us. It is a gift to us. Think about it. Back in Genesis, marriage shows up before sin. It's not an answer to a problem or we're not fixing something. He says, no, no, before anything goes bad, there is marriage. And then at the end, after everything is being made good again and sin has been banished, we find a marriage, right? So it's good. And look, this is empirically true. For anybody who just says, ah, we don't need marriage. Marriage is old-fashioned. We just don't need it. You are... you're. <laughs> You're missing the point. You're, you're, you're made for it in many ways. And when you and I exist in a marriage as God designed it, it leads to unparalleled good. And this, this frustrates the world. Because remember, they're giving up on marriage. They're not marrying as much as they, they used to anymore. You might have said, I don't know if I really need it. Let me show you some of the benefits of getting married. First off, there's some physical benefits. This is from the Harvard Medical School. It says, those who are married live longer, have fewer strokes and heart attacks, have a lower chance of becoming depressed, are less likely to have advanced cancer at the time of diagnosis, more likely to survive cancer for a longer period of time, survive a major operation more often, and survive a heart attack more often. Get this. When they, when they put this in here, the Harvard Medical School is like, and we don't know why. We don't know why. We don't know why marriage seems to be so good for people. I have an answer. 
All right, check it out. Here's another one. Um, this is a study on women. It was a 25-year study. Look what it says. Our findings are striking. The women who got married in the initial time frame, including those who subsequently divorced, had a 35% lower risk of death for any reason over the follow-up period than those who didn't marry in that period. Compared to those who didn't marry, the married women also had lower risk of cardiovascular disease, less depression and loneliness, were happier, more optimistic, and had a greater sense of purpose and hope. P.S., when the, if some of them got divorced, their, their death rate actually did go up after that. 35% decrease in the death rate for those who are married. This is from the Global Epidemiology Journal. And it was a 25-year study. Go to the next one. Uh, so it's not just your personal health. What about health for your kids? Look at this. From the, this is from the Witherspoon Institute. Uh, children who live with married moms and dads show, on average, advantages in literacy and graduation rates, emotional health, family and sexual development, and behavior as both children and as adults. Our kids do better when they grow up with a mom and a dad. They just do. Look at this next one. It's the same thing. This is from the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. Children raised in married two-parent families have two to three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not. It has an impact. It doesn't just impact you. It impacts our kids. And so it impacts us uh, physically, uh, emotionally. It affects our kids. It can also affect you economically. Check this next one. Uh, the marital divide uh, for, uh, and assets for 50-something adults is substantial. Married Americans have more than twice the average assets of divorced and never married Americans, even after controlling for gender, age, education, race, ethnicity, and scores on the armed service vocational aptitude battery. That's a mouthful and a test. Don't worry about it. But... Check it out. What it's saying here is it's not simply that, well, of course you have more money. There's two of you as opposed to a single person. No, no. Even there, your assets almost double as a married couple over time than if you're just trying to do life all by yourself. So it has an economic impact. Go to the next one. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the final one. It says people who do not have sex before marriage have the absolute lowest divorce rates. Go, go study this. Uh, not only does cohabitation lead to a higher divorce rate, those who say, no, I'm going to follow God's plan and I'm not going to save sex for marriage have the absolute lowest divorce rates across the board. I mean, this is shocking. It's startling. And all these people, these are not Christians writing these studies. They're just looking at it to find out, guess what? Marriage is good. It's a blessing. As you and I follow God's path for marriage, it leads to good in your life. It is meant to be a blessing for us. But here's the third and most important thing. Marriage is about the gospel. Marriage, at the end of the day, is about the gospel. And this is the secret of marriage. Look at verse 32 and notice what it says. Ephesians 5, 32, it says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All right, so remember, he's just been giving all these very practical instructions to wives and husbands, but he keeps clicking over to talk about Jesus and how Jesus treats the church. And at the end, he says, this, this is the mystery I'm telling you. Marriage is more than just a relationship between a man and a woman. It's deeper than that. It's spiritual. And there's a mystery here. Uh, the, word in the, Greek, the words in the Greek are interesting here. Uh, the word for uh, mystery in Greek is mysterium. Go figure, right? Uh, that's where we get the English word. That's pretty easy. The word for, for, for profound, though, is different. It's just mega. So literally, the Greek says this. It's a mega mystery. That's literally what the Greek says. It's a mega mystery. But this word mystery doesn't mean like a mystery thriller or something you don't know. You got to wait to the end to find out. This is more like, a, like an open secret, something that was hidden before but has now been revealed. 
It was a mystery that we didn't understand for a long time, but now we see it. Well, that's what he's saying here. This is not something you've got to figure out after 50 years. He's going to tell you up front, this is the mystery. This is about Christ and his church. God is doing something with marriage. He has a purpose for it. Marriage is meant to help us understand the gospel. When you and I live in a marriage, even for lost people, this is supposed to be pointing you to something deeper, drawing you to something deeper. And as we participate in marriage, it is meant to show you a picture of the gospel. But then the flip side is also true. The gospel can help you understand your marriage. As we live in a relationship with Jesus Christ, as we live in the gospel, that can actually inform and help me understand how to live in a marriage. So we're going to break down a lot of the the, the particulars over the course of this series, uh, but we really just need to start with that grand view. So let's start with the gospel for a second. What do we mean when we say the gospel? Well, it's just the good news of Jesus Christ. But if you want to explain the gospel to somebody, all you need to remember is four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. You can explain the gospel to anybody in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right? So creation, I was made for a relationship with God. God created me that I might live in a relationship with him. That's why you and I exist. We were meant to be in a lifelong, eternal relationship with him. That's why I was created. I am not a cosmic accident. I am not just here. He is not optional. That is the purpose of my existence. But I fell. That's the fall. We sinned. You sinned. I sinned. We sinned. We rejected that relationship. It says, no, God, I don't want you to be in control. I want to be in control. I want to do things my way. And so I said no to God. And because we rebelled against the author of life, we got not only sin, we got death and hell to go with it. And we cannot fix it. We have broken that relationship. So creation, fall, that leads us to redemption. This is why Jesus has to come and save us. This is what we celebrated at Easter. You and I don't simply have a couple issues to work out. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't work it off. We can't turn around and get better on our own or try really hard to repair it. We can't, which is why Jesus comes to save us. He redeems us. He he pays for all of our sins. And after he rises from the grave, he just offers us eternal life. He gives all of himself to save us. We are redeemed in him. This is what gives us hope as believers in Jesus Christ. We were created, but we fell, but we have redemption, and that leads to restoration. As believers now, you and I are in a process of becoming more like him. Day by day, month by month, year by year, we are growing, we're changing. God is restoring us, and that will go on into eternity. I will live with the Lord forever, the same way he made me. I have a restored relationship with God, and I'm in the process of changing now, but it absolutely will be completed in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the story of our life as believers. What Paul is saying here is that that same story can help inform your marriage and help you understand not only what it is, but how to live inside of that marriage. And so very quickly, I want to walk through those four things and just kind of show you how those four steps can actually help us understand what marriage is all about. Here's the first thing we need to understand. I was made for a love relationship. I was made for a love relationship. 
Remember, God created us to know him, but inside every person is this pull, this draw towards other people, right? We have this draw to say, I want to love someone and for someone to love me. I want to have this deep connection with somebody. This is why marriage exists even outside of Christian context. But God says it's there from the beginning. We have this draw to, to, to know someone, which is why everybody's looking for their soulmate, right? You're looking for your soulmate. You're looking for the one. Remember? You're looking for the one. Because if you can find the one, then your life would be perfect. Your life would be okay if you could find the one. Out of the seven, eight billion people on the planet, you're looking for the one who can actually fix your life because you've got a, a perfect counterpart, a soulmate, right? And so we look for this person. And you found that person. And then you married that person. And then you got really nervous. Because you realized after for a while, you go, oh, no, I don't know if that's the one or not. <laughs> Wait a minute. This was great like a month ago. What happened? <laughs> Wait, what have I done? <laughs> did I make a mistake? I mean, every, listen, you didn't say that out loud. If you did, go to counseling. Um, <laughs> but everybody thinks it at some point, right? Here's what you need to understand. God made us for this relationship. We're drawn to this relationship, but there's not a human being on the planet who can completely fulfill you. And if you try to make your spouse be the one who fulfills you, this will destroy your marriage. Because great as they are, they cannot be God in your life. You see, the gospel tells me I'm made for this love relationship, but the person I am made for is the Lord first and foremost. He's the only one who can truly satisfy me, who can truly take care of me, whose shoulders can bear the weight of Godhood. But if you look at your spouse and say, you have to be everything, my sun, my moon, my everything, you have to be the rock, you have to be everything, you're the foundation, you are all of it, sooner or later, they will collapse under that weight. Nobody can bear that weight. Listen, there were some reasons why it took me until 37 to get married. I had some things to work out. All right? I had some issues. I had some problems. And look, I had some false ideas about marriage. And this is one of them. You just find the right person, it'll fix everything. It doesn't matter how great your spouse is. There's not a person on this planet who can fulfill that role. And they will feel it. If you put that on somebody else, it will crush them. It will. Or you're going to find yourself so disillusioned. Oh, I married this person. You find out they're not perfect. And all of a sudden, everything is shattered. And you're looking for the door. Try to get out so you can try somebody else. And maybe I'll find the one somewhere else. Hey, there's, there's not another person who's going to fix this for you. There's only one person who can do that. It's the Lord. And once I find my salvation in him and my love in him, well, now I can live with my spouse. And I'm not putting those kind of expectations on them. The Lord becomes the center of our marriage. It's not just me and my wife. It's me and the Lord with my wife. And then all together, the Lord leads us forward. But I must understand the gospel. The Lord satisfies me and he leads me to a wife or a husband. You see how that goes? So number one, I was made for a love relationship. Here's the second one. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. Remember, we fell. So what do we know about everybody on the planet? We are sinners. And that is true for you, and it is true for the person you are married to. See, here's what we all figured out way too late. When now everybody is dating, everyone is lying. Have you noticed that? <laughs> dating is just a period of lies, just the whole thing. 
It's just a season of lying to one another. Because you are. Because think about what you're doing when you're dating. You are always putting your best foot forward, right? You dress up every single time. Every date is Instagram worthy. I mean, it's awesome, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. You do all these, these special things you do, and, and it's just, you're, you're, you're putting your best foot forward because you love this person. You really care about this person. You want them to marry you, and so you don't want to screw it up. And so you're all, you're doing that, and it's great. And, and on top of that, you fall in love, right? And love is intoxicating. Love makes you think this person can do no wrong. When you're in love, say, this person is amazing. There's never been anybody like this person. No one's ever had a love like this. They are incredible. I'm so glad I found this person. We are so connected. Every single thing you do just makes me so excited. Here's the thing about that feeling. Um, when you study that feeling, you need to understand this. You really need to. Um, that feeling can last a minimum of two months and a maximum of two to three years. Max. That initial euphoria where you're infatuated with somebody, that initial feeling, two months to two to three years max. And when it goes away, what hopefully has happened is that you've developed a deeper love, a real love that can then sustain you for a lifetime. But if you're banking on this feeling, what? That's, that, you're setting yourself up for a world of hurt. Because here's what happens. That feeling goes away and you wake up and now you're living with this person. You're going, uh-oh. Because two things occur. You see all their weirdness, right? You find out, wait a minute, this person isn't perfect. They got weird quirks. What have I done? I'm in this forever. And if you thought, man, I was looking for the one, now you're in there going, what has happened? This is terrible. But the flip side is worse. They see all your weirdness. You've been hiding that stuff from everybody. And you were able to because you were single. Your roommates didn't care. But their wife does, right? Or you're a husband. I mean, you're in this now and you can't hide from them because they never leave. <laughs> They're always there. And so you can hide stuff for like, I don't know, maybe a month, a year. The first thing you find out, dude, you're weird, right? <laughs> and all your weird quirks and the things that aren't great about you, man, this person becomes a mirror that you don't even want to look into. And you now see it and go, ugh. And you realize, I'm a sinner. I'm not okay. Well, what do you do with that? Well, here's what the culture says. Well, man, they just need to get over it. They need to accept you for you. Man, you don't need to change your purpose exactly where you are. You do you. You are fine. You don't need to do anything, man. You, they, they just need to get over it. They need to change so they can accept you as is. Good luck with that. Your marriage will be over soon. Because here's the deal. In a marriage, you both need to change. Because you're both sinners. Your spouse does need to change. Guess who else does? You do too. We need to grow. When we see our sin, we need to recognize this is not okay. I do need to grow up. I do need to change. I do need to grow in Christ. That person is there to help you grow in Christ. They're there to help you grow in Christ. And then here's the blessed part. I mean, when you understand the gospel, I stop pretending that, that, that my spouse is the end all, be all, but I stand to recognize I'm a sinner and I'm married to a sinner. Here's what just happened. We made a lifelong covenant. And so now I, I can reveal myself and say, you get to see all of who I am, good, bad, and ugly, and you're not leaving. Isn't that what Jesus does for us? Well, he doesn't wait until we get our act together. He doesn't just choose the best and the brightest, the prettiest, the coolest, the strongest, and say, you can be in my church. You can be in the bride of Christ. And he says, for the broken and the sinful and the terrible and the hurting, the ones who don't understand themselves, hey, I love you, and I see your brokenness. Well, marriage is that place where I can say, hey, I'm not okay, 
And your spouse can go, I know. I'm not either. I can accept you where they are. But let's not stay here. Let's grow. Let's get better together in Jesus Christ. Well, if I don't understand the gospel, I'll have undue expectations here. But the gospel actually helps me understand my marriage. So I need to understand that we are all sinners. Here's the third, the third thing. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus can save us. Remember, when it comes to redemption, I can't save myself. I say, oh, I'm going to go to church. Oh, I'm going to be a better person. Oh, I'm going to try a little bit harder. Good luck with that. It won't work. You can't be good enough. Sooner or later, I have to surrender and say, God, I'm just, I'm just broken and messed up. Will you save me? I got nothing. I surrender. I need you to save me. You're the only one who can. Well, if that's the case, why would we think that we could do marriage on our own? You and I in marriage are attracted to an impossible relationship. When a man and woman come together, we are fundamentally different. And the Lord is going to bring you together. You're both sinners, and the Lord's going to bring you together. This is impossible. It cannot work. And the Lord draws us there anyway. What is he showing us? Hey, I'm going to show you that you got to come to the end of yourself so you can trust me. Because I can save your marriage. I can help you. I can draw you together. I can bind you together as one, not just in yourself or your feelings or your ambitions or your futures or whatever you want, but in me, you can have a relationship that actually lasts forever. You see, sooner or later, all of our energy is going to run out. You can start marriage on your own willpower, and you can have pride, you can have willpower, you can have emotions, uh, you can have zeal, you can have all these different things. Sooner or later, they'll all tap out. They might tap out in the first year or in the first decade, but sooner or later, it's all going to tap out, and you're kind of going to come to a place where you realize, I can't do this, which is where most people just start looking for the door or an affair. Or something else. And what if instead that's the moment, just like with the gospel, where I say, Lord, I can't. I need your help. And so, Jesus, I need you to help me and help my, my wife and I. I need you to help us together to do this because by ourselves, we, we don't have the power to do this. But in you, there is. For some of us, we're, we're thinking about the Lord as an afterthought. We can't. Because it doesn't matter how good you are, how nice you are, how smart you are, how, how, how rich you are, how powerful you are. There, there is nobody who can do this on your own. Marriage, at the end of the day, is supernatural. And we need the Lord to help us to do this. And so when you're, you're looking for a spouse, I hope for sure you're looking for somebody who shares your devotion to Jesus Christ. Because if you have a spouse who's not going to search after Jesus Christ, that makes us that much harder. See why God tells you, don't be unequally yoked. I'm getting too far ahead. But you see what he's saying here. So we get to, I, only Jesus can save us. And here's the final thing. Uh, loving like Christ leads to restoration. Loving like Christ leads to restoration. You see, what, what the Lord does now is, it goes, hey, listen, I have saved you. And now you're going to grow in your salvation. When you and I get saved, we don't really know everything. We just know that God saved us. We get a lot of growing to do, and that's okay. And over time, God changes us. Well, look what he's doing in marriage. In marriage, he's giving us a place to learn to love like Jesus. When you and I get married, it's, it's a place where God is going to teach us to love like Jesus Christ. Because think about how Jesus loves. He loves sacrificially. He goes to the cross. 
He doesn't come to us and say, well, 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 you get better first, and then maybe I'll love you. Try real hard, and then maybe I'll love you. Let me watch you for a while, and then maybe I'll love you. He says, no, while you're a sinner, I'm going to go die for you. I'm going to sacrifice first. I don't say you sacrifice first, and then I'll see if I can. He says, no, I sacrifice first, and I will come alongside you. He said, Adam, how can I do that? I'm going to get taken advantage of. How is that going to work? Here's why that works. Because the Lord has already given me all I need in him. You see, I, I live in him. I respond in him. And so if I live in him, he actually teaches me how to love my wife. How you, how you can love your wife or your husband. How we can do this because I learned to love like Jesus loves. I love sacrificially. I love graciously. And look, that's something you have to learn. We said earlier that marriage is good. Here's what else we need to say out loud. Marriage is hard. Got to get an amen. <laughs> Listen, the single folk need to hear that. I didn't hear that enough when I was single. Marriage is incredibly good. Marriage is also incredibly hard. Some people think, well, Adam, if I had a good marriage, it wouldn't be hard. That is a lie. The best marriages are sometimes the hardest because God is growing us. He's changing us. Listen, you're going to have to learn some things. You can't just assume, well, if I just pick the right person, I'll avoid all of that. You can't. But, but if you choose to say, no, I'm going to walk in the Lord, he will grow you. He will change you. Look, Allison and I got married in this room. Okay, we married, we're coming up on, on 12 years. Uh, listen, uh, the, the, we got married in this room. And when we got married, we, we knew what we were doing. All right, we, we had dated for a couple years. We, I, I was obviously a little bit older. I mean, we, this was not ill-advised. We had prayed this through. We got God in counsel. We knew what we were doing. And when we got married, we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> no clue. Because we'd never been married before. So guess what we've been doing since? Learning. This is what happens in any marriage context. You learn. Sometimes that's hard. Don't assume that because it's hard, that that's not the path you're supposed to be on. Because walking with Christ isn't easy either, is it? He's good. He loves us. And walking with him is not always easiest. But he is taking us on a journey to complete and total joy and fulfillment in him. If you want to see a marriage that has joy and fulfillment, ultimately, it is one that is centered in Jesus Christ. There will be ups and downs. But this is the crucible. Marriage is the crucible where I learn how to love like Jesus loves me. It's a gift. It's hard. But if you and I will walk this path, if we allow the gospel to teach me about marriage, and allow marriage to teach me about the gospel together with your spouse. You grow up into this beautiful union that not only blesses you, but becomes a beacon to the entire world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you one last time. What's your picture of marriage? When you think about what it's supposed to be, what's your picture? And does your picture conform to the gospel? what God says about it, or do we take our parents or television or culture or something else only to find out that that's going to disappoint you? What if we begin to go on a journey and say, I, I want to learn this secret that the gospel stands at the center of marriage and can lead me into fullness of life? So do this one. Bow your heads and close your eyes where you're at. Like I said before, I know we're all across the room here today. 
married, unmarried, single, divorced, remarried, widowed. We, we got a little bit of everything here. And look, I know a topic like this dredges up a lot for us, and that's okay. Because regardless of where you are, the Lord wants to teach us something. He wants to show us how to live in him, walk in him, how to, how to champion marriage as he designs it. Because it's a blessing. It's a good. And he wants to give that blessing to us. Even if we don't end up getting married, he wants to give that blessing to us. And so maybe today the Lord's opening up your eyes to something to say, man, I, I need to really think about this. I may need to look at this a little bit differently. Maybe it's time I stop waiting for somebody else to move and I need to move. What's the Lord showing you today? Let him show you the gospel, his life in you. Because just like he brings us into forgiveness and joy and salvation, he wants to bring that to you in your marriage as well. So Heavenly Father, I pray a blessing on us. Lord, we ask for your help. Marriage can be hard. Lord, there's days we understand it, days we really don't. Lord, I pray that for all of us in this room, especially those who are married, that you would, you would help us, legitimately help us by your Holy Spirit to bind us together, to help us to understand marriage as you intend it. God, that not only we could discover the joys you made us for, but, but also that we could show other people what it's like. But Lord, for all my brothers and sisters who might be uh, unmarried, single, divorced, widowed, Lord, there's pain that goes along with this topic. And so would you walk us through as well? Open our hearts to learn some things that we need to learn as we walk with you. And so bless all of us, Lord, as we lift up what you teach us about marriage. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand up if you will.